As we uh, continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, I want to begin by telling you a story. And uh, after that, I want to show how that relates to the events in Mark chapter 11. And then we'll see what Jesus wants us to learn from this. It was his birthday. Joshua Rex turned 30. He was young to be the founder of a multi-million dollar company called T-Rex. T-Rex.com sold quality teas with incredible quality and variety and flavor and service. T-Rex not only survived the dot-com crash, it thrived during that time. As Joshua Rex personally traveled extensively around the world and, and diversified and turned T-Rex.com into a global success. Now after 13 months away in Australia and New Zealand, Joshua was returning to T-Rex headquarters in Chicago. He was flying the company jet himself. With him were Tom and Dan, his, his management team. As the plane circled toward the airport, Rex admired the beautiful skyline and glad to be back. He hadn't told anyone what time he might arrive. He turned to Tom and said, Tom, call the office and have them send somebody to pick us up. Tom nodded. I'll get us a stretch Humvee. No, nothing like that. Send one of our delivery vans. A minivan? Tom said, are you, are you kidding? No, I'm serious. So Tom got on the phone. What do you mean you need the van for something important? This is important. Mr. Rex needs a ride. 20 minutes? Okay. The minivan arrived in 37 minutes. The bronze-colored letters of T-Rex.com branded the side. It needed a wash. So did the driver who was smiling but sweaty. He nervously launched the luggage into the back and then ushered Joshua Rex into the front seat. During the ride, Joshua had more time to think. All the company reports he'd been reviewing for the past year said profits were down and costs were up, that, that cash flow was tight and layoffs seemed a real possibility. Rex was anxious to check that out in person. When the T-Rex building finally came into sight, he felt a jolt of excitement. Uh, immediately, though, he noticed that it looked a little shabby. The five-story brick structure housed everything, processing, Packaging, shipping, administrative, finance, 1,200 employees. And it needed a coat of paint. The bronze letter A in T-Rex hung crookedly. The lawn was shaggy, pockmarked. A crowd of employees had gathered at the gate, though, and they began to wave and shout as the van approached. Many of them held makeshift signs that said, Welcome home, Rex, and T-Rex rules, and save our jobs. People surrounded the van, yelling, excited. Rex opened the door and stood on the running board as the, as the van inched forward, waving to the crowd, and they went wild. Some reached out to shake his hand. Most tried to take selfies with Joshua in the background. As the van crawled forward, the people walked with it. It was a mass of joyful noise. And they started to, to chant, Welcome home! It was a grand entrance. It was sort of like a coronation. At the front doors, Rex hopped to the ground and the cheers got louder. 
He entered the lobby, and the place was alive with light and color and sound. There were balloons and streamers and banners and people everywhere. And they began to sing happy birthday as a giant cake was rolled into the center of the room. Gifts and good wishes were pressed on him. Joshua Rex was warmed by it all. But he couldn't stay long. He was on a mission. Followed by Tom and Dan, he he moved on to the executive wing. And and strangely, the crowd seemed to melt away as he moved, and and the cheers died out. The three walked alone. Their footsteps echoed in the hallway. Few, if any, department heads had attended the party. Not a single vice president had been there. Rex walked past their offices. Everything looked new. Gold nameplates on the doors, expensive furniture in each room. Rex stopped in front of the CFO's office and addressed the startled man sitting behind the desk. Turn over the books to him, Rex said, pointing at Dan. And I mean the real books. Without waiting for an answer, Rex left. Within minutes, he and Tom reached the center of the plant, the heart of T-Rex.com. Here, tea leaves were inspected, processed, and packaged, and signs of neglect were everywhere. None of the workers wore masks or gloves. Remnants of lunch littered the inspection table. A shredding machine lay in pieces. Surfaces were grimy. The stained walls had signs identifying the variety of teas. And Rex walked over to the biggest bin labeled T-Rex Premium. It was the, the signature brand. came from an exotic shrub found only in the remote mountainside in Thailand, aromatic leaves that that brewed a dark and rich and slightly sweet tea, leaves that launched the company. Rex leaned over and sniffed and quickly turned away. Tell me what you think, Tom. There was sadness in his voice. Tom scooped his hand into the bin and raised the tea to his nose, frowned. I think they sell this at Dollar General, he said. The two walked back slowly, and Dan met them on the way in his arms, a box full of papers and discs and charts, and his face said it all. The three returned to the lobby. Balloons floated in midair, but the people were gone. An outline of frosting marked where the cake had once been. Streamers and banners hung in silence. It was like a funeral. And outside, the light was fading. They started down the driveway. It was deserted. A discarded sign was on the ground, and Joshua bent down and picked it up. And it said, Welcome home, Rex. And then he cried, the only sound in the stillness. Mark 11 is an extremely significant event. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this event. We know it as the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as Mark 11 opens. He and the disciples reach the villages of Bethany and Bethphage. and uh, These are two places very close to the city. Uh, and and they, they sit on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And the view from those places of that city of Jerusalem is breathtaking. Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead, telling them to find a, a, a young donkey that's never been ridden. And he tells them, they will find one and, and to bring it back. And if anyone questions them, they are to say, the Lord needs it. You'll, you'll get it back. The disciples didn't know it then, but this fulfilled a prophecy made 550 years before Zechariah 9.9, the entrance of the king on this unridden colt. 
The colt, by the way, was the type of animal used for special occasions. The ride of choice for a king on those kind of occasions, except in battle. That was not a battle animal. And the two disciples go and find the animal just as Jesus said, and people ask, well, what are you doing? And the disciples reply, this is for the Lord. And that solves the problem. They bring the donkey to Jesus, and people take off their coats, and they drape them over the donkey's back as a cushion, a saddle. And Jesus gets on. The picture of a grown man astride a, a young donkey may seem ridiculous to us, but it was the picture of peace. And Jesus rides toward Jerusalem and now the, the party starts as people spread their coats on the road and, and this is the red carpet treatment. Others take tree branches and bushes and palm fronds and put them in the donkey's path and more and more people join the crowd. It gets bigger and louder and noisier. Surrounding the donkey they yell, Hosanna! Which means save now. They shout other things too like, we're happy the kingdom is coming. The people are excited. A spontaneous celebration breaks out. Jesus is respected. He's honored. And they seem ready to embrace Him. Most hope for a military leader who, who will rescue them from Roman oppression. But Jesus comes as Prince of Peace, calling people to repent and receive the good news. But Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. The party follows. And they shout, Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus enters the eastern gate of the city. He makes a left turn. And somewhere the crowd disappears and the cheers stop and only the disciples are left. And a hundred yards away from that gate is the temple area, which by the way, a complex 35 acres big. Jesus walks into it and he looked around. The Greek word there for looking is to, is to gaze commandingly. It's to survey. He's evaluating what he sees there, this scene. You see, Jesus is looking for something, but nothing happens. You notice how anticlimactic this is? There's no mention of the crowds. It's a complete anticlimax. If, see, all the excitement around Jesus as he went toward Jerusalem was real, there would be some evidence of it in the temple. If his people were ready for a Savior, like they said, they would be repenting and worshiping God. If their emotions were sincere, they would be doing what mattered most. But nothing good happens. And Luke in his Gospel tells us that Jesus cried that day. The Jesus who went to the cross carrying our sin, suffering horribly, dying in agony, rose again. He wept that day. The one who came to rescue all who confess with their mouth that he is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. On that day, he felt only heartache. And a week later, some of those same people that had chanted his name screamed, crucify him. Crucify him. I just want you to realize that it's not our parties for Jesus that demonstrate faith. It's not our liturgy, it's not our music that shows we believe. We can make all kinds of commitments and promises and celebrations that mean nothing. Enthusiasm is no substitute for devotion. Celebration is no match for obedience. So what does Jesus see when he surveys your life? What does he see? Is there a veneer of spirituality that covers an unwillingness to obey? 
Does he see religious activity or does he see sincere devotion? Does he see public praise and private obedience? No amount of celebration proves we believe. And no matter how excited we get about Jesus, without faith it is impossible to please him. And more than a party, Jesus is searching for those who put their faith in him alone. Now I love Mark crafted these events as he wrote this gospel. He crafted these events to show us what Jesus is looking for in his followers. This story helps us to evaluate our faith, to consider whether our faith is alive or is it dead. Notice what happens after Jesus leaves the temple. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So why does Jesus get mad at a tree? I got mad at trees when I used to play golf, but why did Jesus get mad at trees? What's going on? Well, the leaves were out, and leaves come out on fig trees in Jerusalem in, in March or so. And even before the leaves fig buds appear. These are green and not all that tasty, but they're often eaten by locals, especially if you're hungry. Now, the fruit doesn't fully ripen until June or so, but if you saw a fig tree with leaves, you would expect it to be loaded with figlets. You would expect that that would be what should happen. Jesus was hungry enough to eat fig buds, but he went to that tree and found only leaves. Now, it wasn't fruit season yet, but there, weren't any, but there weren't even any fig buds, no figlets. So Jesus curses the tree. Now, many commentators seem to wish this story wasn't in the Bible. Now, why does Jesus destroy a perfectly innocent tree? Uh, how could he be so irrational? This isn't the loving Jesus I know. And my scholarly response is, lighten up. Uh, this is an illustration that Jesus gives. It's a parable that Jesus gives that's very important. Because like this tree, his people look healthy, but they're not. From a distance, they look like they're producing. There seems to be life, spiritually speaking, from a distance, but up close there isn't. The temple is active, but in reality they produce nothing, even though they look great from a distance. Notice the tie-in, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem... And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So Mark is showing us that the fig tree that Jesus cursed and the temple activity are related. You see, if there were any devoted people, if there was anyone who was ready for the Messiah, if there was anyone seeking God with their whole heart, they would be in the temple Worshiping, praising, but instead of songs and praise and prayers, there was the noise of buying and selling, commotion. There was bustling religious activity, but there was no real spiritual life. Now, what was going on there? You see, understand that those coming to worship needed a sacrificial animal, that sacrificial animal to praise God with, to give thanks to God, or to cover their sin. Uh, that was what they would do. And, and you could bring a sacrificial animal from home, but it would need to be inspected to see if it would pass. It would need to be a, a perfect, unblemished animal. And if it didn't pass, then you were stuck. 
And so it seemed for many the easiest thing was to buy one there. Well, people were taking advantage of that, selling these animals at marked up prices. And notice there were pigeons. What was the pigeon for? If you were really, really poor, the only sacrifice you could bring was a pigeon. And so this is exploiting the poor. These are religious mercenaries preying on the vulnerable. And Jesus takes action and he overturns furniture. Notice he stopped people from carrying things through the temple. Why did he do that? This 35-acre complex. Well, apparently they were using it as a shortcut. People were walking through uh, to, to be, between the city and the Mount of Olives. That was a shortcut. And, and this was disrespect. You, you weren't uh, supposed to go up to the Temple Mount wearing sandals, carrying a staff or a wallet, let alone using it as a, a shortcut. Now the temple is a place of business and a bypass. And Jesus shuts it down. Verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, it wasn't only Jewish religious life that was messed up. They made it impossible for non-Jews to approach God. Where they were buying and selling was the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place in, in the temple complex that those who were not Jewish could come and approach God, could pray to God, could praise God, could meet God. And now this was taken up like a Walmart. And they were not allowing the nations to come in. Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations, and now they are not. The religious leaders heard what Jesus said in verse 18, and they looked for a way to destroy him. So, after overturning the tables, Jesus' and his disciples leave again. It's evening again. And, and then the next morning, verse 21, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So, it, it just wasn't a little wilted. Overnight, it was now dead wood. And Peter points it out, and Jesus doesn't give a full interpretation here, but from the context, we see that this is a prediction of judgment, that like the tree, Jerusalem will soon suffer, judgment will fall, and the temple will no longer be the way to approach God. Uh, the, the system of sacrifices will be dead, and all of it will be replaced by Jesus. He's the only way to God the Father. He's the center of spiritual life, the ultimate sacrifice, and through his death, burial and resurrection we can have peace with God and we're transformed into new creations and made alive well, let me point out to you from the story thus far four signs of unproductive faith just in this account four signs of unproductive faith uh, I, th this made me think of some some years ago I decided that uh, I would purchase some fruit trees and I would have a little orchard on my property which wasn't it was just a backyard but uh so i bought these fruit trees about this size maybe half a dozen of them and i planted them very carefully uh, along my fence and and fertilized them and and watered them and took care of them and month after month after month went by and nothing happened nothing happened well about a year or so uh someone a horticulturist really was was visiting us and 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 i sort of took her past my orchard just to see what she would say and she looked at those and she said you can pull those up and when i did there was just a stick 
No life at all. My dreams of an orchard, dead. What are signs that your faith is not producing? What are those signs? Just let me point out some four from this passage. One is it's superficial. There's nothing but leaves. Yes, there's leaves that seem to be a sign of life, but there's no fruit produced. So in your life, that means there's little evidence that you allow the Spirit of God to control your life, to empower your life. You're not surrendering to Him. And, and so there, so love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are not flowing from you. Your, your faith is superficial. That's a sign that it's unproductive. Second, you're mercenary. Mercenary, seeking profit instead of God's glory. And you don't have to be selling stuff in church to be spiritually greedy. When you approach God as simply a conduit for your spiritual blessing, you're a mercenary. Uh, when, when, you, when God doesn't give you what you want when you want it, and so you become bitter or you lose spiritual fervor, you are a mercenary. When you take advantage of other people in the body of Christ and you repeatedly, selfishly uh, complain when you don't get what you want, you are mercenary, unproductive faith. Third, disrespectful. Treating the things of God as a shortcut to your goals. Not reverencing Him in worship. Not honoring His truth. I see corporate worship as vital to a healthy Christian life and absolutely a time for us together to show respect to God and honor Him in every way. I've been so blessed in, in previous years to, to just have among God's people the spirit of expectation of meeting with God. To have people lined up the, at the doors waiting to get into the next service and there's this hush of expectancy as we wait to worship Almighty God. This has been my greatest prayer in the time that I have been at Cypress Bible Church that we would experience that as well here. Fourth, isolationist. Isolationists. Just as those in the temple were not caring about the nations and being a light to the nations, if you don't care about the nations, you have an unproductive spiritual life. Your faith is unproductive. If you don't have God's vision that, that people from every language and ethnicity and people group will surround the throne of heaven, if you don't participate in the effort to spread the good news, if patriotism is more important to you than evangelism, then you have an unproductive faith. The testimony that we just heard from our team returning from Sri Lanka, we sent out that team not to spread Americanism, but to spread the good news of Jesus. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have our Go Conference. And that is expressing our heart, our desires. We continue to, to send global workers around the world as we tend to continue to reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ because isolationists, not thinking beyond ourselves is a sign of, a, of an unproductive faith. So what do you need to live a productive life? I, I'm just going to go with Jesus' answer. I put it this way. To live a spiritually productive life, you need faith and forgiveness. Faith and forgiveness. Notice Jesus' answer here, verse 22. First he says, have faith in God. That's his answer. Have faith in God. Now, many people talk about faith. It is crucial that you don't simply have faith in faith. That's what a lot of Americans have. Faith in faith. Instead, your focus must be on the almighty Lord of the universe. Productive faith leans on God alone. To say, I have faith in myself, 
or I have faith that everything will work out, or I have faith in America. No, no, no. Uh, have faith in God, Jesus calls us to. And what does that look like? Notice this, verse 23. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So Jesus uses an impossible example. Standing on the Mount of Olives, on a clear day, the Dead Sea is possible to be seen. It's visible. Tossing this mountain into that sea is possible through faith in God. Your faith in the power of God expressed through prayer is limitless. Now, Jesus is not calling us to pointless displays of power. The mountain is a symbol of difficulty. Uh, bold belief that God can remove an impossible situation must be expressed in prayer. Believing. Faith is believing enough to ask God, no matter what the obstacle is in your life. Jesus taught us to pray that the Father's will be done. John, who was standing next to him there on the mountain, when Jesus said these very words, writes this in 1 John. He says, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears and answers us. Here's the reality. A productive faith is bold enough to ask God for the impossible. That's what a productive faith is. It's bold enough to ask God for what is impossible. Real faith breaks loose and cries out courageously, confidently to God in Jesus' name. It believes that God can act outside the realm of possibility. And I don't know how many times I have let difficult circumstances keep me from boldly asking God. Productive faith doesn't do that. It boldly asks. Then he says, verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, point of allegiance. Jewish people stood to pray in that day, and in fact still to this day will stand in front of the wailing wall to pray. So Jesus says when you're standing there asking God for the impossible and you realize there's somebody you must forgive, go and do it. Because if you want to live in forgiveness of God, then you better pass that forgiveness along to others. You cannot hold grudges. You can't harbor resentment. You can't live vindictively and expect God to hear your prayers. Without a spirit of forgiveness... It just faith won't operate. Your life will lack fruitfulness, productivity. It will be barren. And, and if you choose to hold on to the hurts that you have, rather than confront and release them, you will have an unproductive faith. Your willingness to forgive shows you understand God's forgiveness. It shows that your faith is not superficial, but has changed you. And so if you, you're standing before a mountain of trouble, and problems are heaped in front of you, blocking the light of day, I can tell you what God's will is for you. It's this. Forgive anyone who has wronged you. Forgive anyone who has wronged you. Only a person who has been transformed by the grace of God can do that. And until you forgive, you will not see God do the impossible. Now, about a month ago, someone told me that they talked to somebody else who has been upset with me for something that happened years ago. I was unaware of this. I didn't know that. So I connected with this man who supposedly uh, was hurt by me. Something I said. I, I had to leave a message asking if we could meet and talk this through. I haven't heard back yet from him. I, I hope to, but that's all I can do. That's all I can do. I don't have a grudge against him. 
But if I did, it would prevent fruitfulness in my life. If he does have a grudge against me and he does not resolve that, work to resolve that, his life will not be spiritually productive either. Jesus said that's how this works. So how can I live a spiritually productive life? Pray in faith to the God of the impossible and forgive others as you have been forgiven. For some reason, this made me think of, of Chuck Sackett, who I, who I was acquainted with years ago. And um, Chuck was a, a Boy Scout uh, as a kid, and, and uh, his family didn't go to church. They didn't believe in God. Chuck had no spiritual influence in his life. But when he got to that point in Boy Scouts about the God and Country Award, he was all about that. He, he thought, even if I have to go to church to earn this award, I'm going to do it. And so every week... Sackett walked to this little church in his neighborhood and he went alone because his family would not go with him. And to get there, he passed by Mr. and Mrs. Renard's house. And uh, they were a nice elderly couple that he knew because he would do work for them, yard work for them on Saturdays. So every week, Chuck would go to that that church. He'd pass by the Renard's house. and, And he went there long enough to just earn that award and then he quit. Years later, Sackett heard the the gospel, the good news of Jesus, put his faith in Christ alone. And eventually, he was, when I met him, Dr. Sackett, professor of preaching at Lincoln Christian University. He's still there to this day. Years after getting his God and Country Award, Sackett heard that the Renards were in a nursing home, and so he took his wife and he went to visit them. In the course of their conversation, they said this, do you remember when you used to walk to that little church past our house. We have not missed one day since praying that God would do something in your life. And second says, this elderly couple prayed for me every day for years. And back then I had no other Christian influence. I was prayed into the kingdom. See, until that visit, the Renards had no idea their prayer for this boy had been answered. That he not only knew Jesus, he became a pastor and then a professor in a seminary. How can I live a spiritually productive life? Pray in faith to the God of the impossible and forgive others as I've been forgiven. And we will see God change our world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love to us. That while we are still sinners, you demonstrated that love in sending Jesus. Lord, may those of us who have put our trust in you not live a fruitless life. Not live a life that's lax and unproductive, but may we live a life that, that bears much fruit. That the people around us, our family, our classmates, our co-workers, our neighbors, can see in us the beauty of Jesus. Because we have been transformed from darkness to life, from dead to life. We ask this in the powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.